Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. And when you find that, please stand with me to read God's Word. We're going to see what God has for us today in His Word. We're going to read Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Matthew chapter 10, and beginning at verse 1. And He called to Him His twelve disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits, to cast them out, and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is true. We thank you, Lord, that you are a calling God, and you are a giving God, and you are good. Lord, we come to you today once again as very needy people. We need you. We need to hear from you. We need to be changed by you. We need to be strengthened by you. We need your wisdom. So Lord, we ask and we trust that you will honor our prayer that you would teach us that you would make us the people you want us to be. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're talking about calling today, God's calling, and we use that word a lot, you know, that we use the word uh, calling and being called by God often as Christians. Uh, We speak of being called by God to do certain things. We'll say things like, God called me to serve him, or God called me to marry my spouse. We'll use it also interchangeably with other words sometimes we'll say i felt led by god to do this and so uh, i i figured god had called me to it sometimes we'll use uh, more formal words we'll say god chose me to do this or god appointed me to do something but calling is often misunderstood and often misused as a word and as an idea And we need to understand what it means to be called by God to reach others with the gospel of the grace of God in Christ so that we would fulfill the purpose God has for us. We must be sure of our calling and what it entails in order to fulfill our calling, our true calling from God. Now we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount. We looked at it for quite a while. And in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount shows us what it looks like to know and to love and to follow Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 10 is a sermon on mission. What it means to be Christ-centered people in a hostile world. What it means to be sent by God with the gospel to a spiritually needy world. Sometimes it's easy to forget. 
we get so wrapped up in the things that we do in life and the problems and what's going on right now and what we think might happen that we forget that we live in a very spiritually bankrupt world. So we look and see in Matthew 10 about what it means to be sent by God with the gospel, first of all, motivated by compassion, and then sure of our calling, displaying godly character, exercising caution because the days are evil, commanding courage, embracing the crucifixion and what it means to be crucified with Christ, and then receiving God's righteous rewards. We saw last week in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38, that compassion is what motivates mission. That compassion is essential motivation for taking the gospel. It it highlighted the fact that we need the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need His compassion. And we need to be praying. We need to be praying that God would do what He says He will do. As we saw in those verses that Jesus was going about all the cities and villages... And he was teaching and preaching and healing. And as he went, he saw the people. He he felt compassion for the people. He saw their spiritual condition and therefore felt for them, felt with them. He suffered with them. He had come to earth to suffer for them, but here he saw them and, and literally suffered with their plight. And so he told his disciples to pray for God to act. Pray for God to send out workers into his harvest. While compassion inspires mission, calling confirms it. You need to be sure of your calling so that you're able to function unrestrictedly in the role that God had given you. Calling is just as crucial in the process of being sent. You need to know that you're called. You're chosen by another of a higher rank, another of a higher authority than you, and they bestowed their authority upon you. The one who has chosen and, and called you is sending you as well with their authority. We know that God's purpose in saving us is to conform us to the image of Christ, that we would praise Jesus Christ forever. God's purpose for us involves helping others know Jesus as well. We are sent by God on assignment, on a journey of rescuing the perishing. We know that we exist for His glory, and we know that God is glorified when more and more people come to know Jesus and praise Jesus. So I want to see today, I want to show you today how God's calling plays into that. What we see in chapter 10 and verse 1 is is this idea of calling. We see that Jesus called to Himself His 12 disciples. He called them. He, he summoned them. The Greek word is proskaleo, and it means to call to. He called 12 disciples, the corresponding to the 12 patriarchs of Israel and the sons of Jacob from whom the 12 tribes of Israel came. Shows the continuity of God's program of salvation throughout the ages. And these 12 are being sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They are to preach that God's kingdom has arrived. Jesus called these 12 to himself to be disciples. The disciple means student. Many of you are students. All of us have been students at one point in time. 
All of us are learning all the time. But a, a disciple means to be a student, to be a learner, to be a follower. It's someone who accepts the instruction of their teacher and then makes their teaching the basis of their conduct. This is what Jesus' disciples were going to do. Take his teaching and make that the basis of their conduct. They would totally submit to his authority. Sometimes it's easy for us not to submit to our teacher's authority. Sometimes we want to we rebel. The disciples were those who would totally submit to Christ's authority, totally surrender to him, be captured by his grace, and, and thereby surrender to him. And it wasn't static. It wasn't artificial. It was an ongoing, relational, living experience. When I speak of calling here, I mean what God wants his people to do. What God calls his people to do. Now, you think about the first 12 disciples. Their calling was basically a short-term missions trip. They were going on a short-term missions trip to the lost sheep of Israel. But it was a prototype of what would happen in the first century church. It was a prototype of what would happen from the first century on, on to this day. It's important for us to understand God's calling here because it's the same way he calls us. It's the same way he sends us today. What God wants his people to do, that's his calling. You see, Jesus changes everything he comes in contact with. Nothing is ever the, never the same after you, if you come to meet Jesus. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, it says that if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation, a new creature a new person the old things have passed away and new things have come nothing is the same after you meet jesus second corinthians chapter four explains some of the things that that god does and how we respond to his calling let me read to you some of what god does in in calling us to serve him chapter four and verse one says this therefore Having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, we're called to be servants. Verse 6 continues, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. For we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. 
that the calling of a disciple of Christ. That's the calling of those who are called to follow. The first Christians to go by the name Christian, Christ's ones, meant counting the cost to follow. It wasn't casual. It wasn't a one thing in a life full of many. It would become the overriding influence in their life. They switched their most foundational, their most fundamental allegiance to Jesus Christ. This was weighty business. This was serious. This was not haphazard. This was not something that they would just change their minds about the next week. The all-or-nothing choice is due to the magnitude of Christ's claims. He gives all. He asks all. In Matthew 4.19, he says, follow me. And it wasn't a casual following. It wasn't, well, hey, we'll, we'll, go, we'll see where he goes and see if we want to go with him. This was leaving everything behind and following Jesus. In Matthew 16, in verse 24, Jesus told this to his disciples. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That literally means to repudiate yourself, to reject yourself, to deny himself and take up his cross. There is a a cross involved. There is a dying to self involved. And follow me, Jesus says. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. From the earliest days, Christians confessed Christos Kurios. Christos Kurios. Jesus Christ is Lord. In the first century, they were required to say Kaiser Kurios. Caesar is Lord. See, confessing Christ as Lord meant you believe that Jesus was the supreme power, is the supreme power, and it puts you at direct odds with the culture of the day. It put you under a sentence of death. So there's this calling, and it's the calling that Christ has on his disciples, and it's what he wants his people to do. In this situation, it was a a relatively short-term mission to Israel. That there would be more after the cross, after the resurrection, after the ascension, and the early church was birthed, there would be more to this day the mission of taking the gospel to a spiritually bankrupt world. And what goes along with calling is the idea of authority. We see it in verse 1, that Jesus gave them authority. Sometimes we don't like the word authority. We think of it as a negative thing if, if we've been around people who've used authority in a wrong way. Authority, when used rightly, is very good. It says that Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. He gave them God's authority. The Greek word there is exousia. It means permission. It means the right 
It means the liberty. It means the power to do anything. It has its idea that the power to do anything, but not just the power, the right to exercise that power. It is God-given power and the right to act as his representatives. This is what Jesus did. He gave them authority. They were being sent out to do the same things that Jesus was doing. They were being sent. They were being given the ability to do what they could not do without Jesus. The one whose words were authority-filled bestowed on them the gift of his authority. He delegated it to them to show them and to show the world that without a doubt, he is sovereign over all physical and spiritual realms. He is sovereign over the effects of sin. Every one of us, from the youngest to the oldest, is suffering today from the effects of sin. The mileage of sin upon our souls. And Jesus is showing them here as he bestows the gift of his authority that he is sovereign over physical and spiritual realms. He is sovereign over the effects of sin and the efforts of Satan to kill and to destroy. So he gives them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and he gives them power to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. You see down in verse 7 that they're going to be preaching as they go, proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, But the display of God's power here was unprecedented. He gave them, it was a gift to authenticate their calling as God's messengers. In verse 2, we see their names. These 12 were chosen. It would be easy to skip right on by this because, well, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the lists are there in Acts chapter 1 there's a list in the gospel of John you've got to piece it together and you can get everyone but three all but three a few are left out in the gospel of John but it would be easy to go past this and not see the significance first of all we read in verse 2 that the names of the 12 apostles apostle means sent sent one ambassador from the, word, the verb apostello, apo, from, stele, to send. It means to send on a special mission. They're being sent. They're sent ones. They're apostles. And by the way, this word was rarely used in classical Greek. It is the first and only time in Matthew's gospel it is used. And it signifies something significant. It signifies a special calling that Christ was instituting. A special calling that right then Christ was instituting. In the New Testament, apostle has both narrow and and wide meanings. Narrowly, uh, which is the usual sense in which it is used, it signifies the special representatives chosen by Jesus to play a foundational role in the birth of the church, in establishing the church. It usually refers to the twelve. But Paul is included also as an apostle to the Gentiles, as one untimely born, The wider sense of the word apostle means messenger. People like Barnabas and Titus and Epaphroditus 
those within a group of missionaries larger than the 12 and Paul. But the idea here is that being a witness of Christ to the world is a special and unique calling. Not everyone gets it. It is a special and unique calling. And and as we see, it is not something done alone. We see the idea here of community. God gathering those he sends, and their names are significant. Don't gloss over genealogies. This is not a genealogy, by the way. This is a list of of 12 apostles. But don't gloss over genealogies because they are there for a reason. God uh, sees names as significant because people are significant. Now these 12, their names are significant. We see that there are six pairs of two. Goes along with Matthew six, uh, Mark six seven, which says that Jesus sent them out two by two. But they were very ordinary men. They they were they were not wealthy. They were not academics. They they had no great background that would people would think, wow, this is the the best that Jesus could pick out of everyone who was alive at that point. They had no social position. They were basically just common folks. They were, they were, they were a really interesting mixture. If, if, you think, if you think we're an interesting mixture here at Grace, think with me just about the 12 apostles for a moment. But think with me in this context that Jesus does his mission through undeserving, unlikely, very different people working together. Jesus does his mission through undeserving, unlikely, very different people, and he gets them to work together for his glory to show his excellency and power. First, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. They were fishermen from Bethsaida. Uh, the Bible here says, first Peter, first Simon, who is called Peter. Now, some have taken this too far. Some have not taken it far enough. The idea here is that he is first. By the way, he's listed first in every list of the disciples. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and in Acts. He was a true leader. Now, he wasn't over them. They had one one master, Jesus. But he was what you would call first among equals. First among equals, Peter. And then there was Andrew, his brother, not quite as prominent, but, but important. You don't need to be prominent to be important in God's economy. And he brought people, including his brother Peter, to Jesus. The second pair is James, the son of Zebedee, and, and John, his brother, the second set of prominent brothers, also fishermen. Jesus called them the sons of thunder. We had some thunder here this week in Southern California. It was loud. It, it was crashing. It was jolting. It was, it was somewhat shocking. These men were not meek, humble souls. They were sons of thunder due to their intense personalities. Once they wanted to destroy a Samaritan city that rejected Jesus. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Next, you have Philip and Bartholomew. 
Philip means lover of horses. From Bethsaida as well. Bartholomew is Aramaic. It means son of Tolmai. He's probably Nathaniel, who we see in John chapter 1, from Cana, of whom Jesus said, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile, no falsehood. He's genuine. You want Jesus to say that about you. Next we have Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. Thomas is called the twin. How'd you like to be the twin that wasn't chosen? He was known for doubting, but also for courage. Matthew. Why would Matthew call himself Matthew the tax collector? Now sometimes we remember what we were like before we came to Christ. It shocks us, it saddens us, it makes us very thankful for God's grace. I think this is James' humble acknowledgement, excuse me, Matthew's humble acknowledgement, remembering his former life, remembering God's grace to him. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, we don't know a lot about these two. Thaddeus means beloved. James may have been Matthew's brother. We don't know for sure. The last pair is Simon the Canaanian. Your Bible may say Simon the Zealot. And Judas Iscariot. How would you like to be paired up with that? Simon the Canaanian. Canaanian means zealot. And Josephus describes zealots as the fourth party of the Jews behind the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes. And they said that God was their only ruler and Lord. They refused to call any man king. They were willing to die for freedom. They, they would murder to rid their country of foreign rule. They were the patriots among the Jews. Simon the zealot. And then there's Judas. Judas is always listed last. Peter's always listed first. Judas is always listed last. Judas, verse 4 says, betrayed Jesus, who betrayed him. We know that about Judas. Iscariot means one from Kariah, the town in Judah. And he was the treasurer, and he was a thief. And he betrayed Jesus, and he took his own life. And what we have here in the 12 is a community of very different individuals brought together by Jesus and I know what you're thinking you're thinking but Judas is in there don't you think Jesus knew but he was a traitor he's not going to be in heaven we won't see him in heaven but he was there it's that it's that idea that in, in a gathering of any kind of the the gathered church, there are going to be, there's going to be weeds amongst the wheat. There'll be goats among the sheep. There'll be imposters among those who are real. And God does not call us to go and question everyone's salvation or question everyone's, um, you know, testimony. We're called to make sure, to examine ourselves and make sure we're in the faith. God knows those who are His. But we have this community, and it's a, a very different individuals brought together by Jesus, and they probably didn't feel able. They probably didn't feel able and up to the task. Second Corinthians 
chapter 3 and verse 6 speaks of confidence confidence in in God confidence in who he is and what he does and I believe this was the type of confidence that Jesus would have instilled in them it says in verse 4 2 Corinthians 3 4 such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us but our sufficiency is from God who made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant not of the letter but of the spirit for the letter kills but the spirit gives life see they probably didn't feel adequate to the task but God would be their adequacy Christ would be their sufficiency it's like when you write a check or send in a payment and, and you've got un- non-sufficient funds, NSF, and, and you're not able to pay. You don't know how you're going to get the money and someone's going to have to bail you out. They probably didn't feel like they had what it took. Apart from him, they could do nothing, but with him they could do all things. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26 verse 31 says this um, through verse 31 verse 26 says consider your calling brothers not many of you were wise according to worldly standards not many were powerful not many were of noble birth it means some were but not many were but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So you feel today like you're not so hot. Well, be encouraged. God will instill confidence in you because of who He is. It says in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 29 it says that he did this so that no human being might boast in the presence of God that no one would boast that he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption therefore as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord you want to brag brag about Jesus brag about how everything changed when you came to know Jesus. Brag about how good he is. Brag about how merciful he was to you and still is on a daily basis. You might not feel up to the task. I'm sure they didn't. Not many wise, not many mighty. A a very diverse group. Fishermen, a tax collector, and a zealot together in the same group. Some quiet, some impetuous brought together for the gospel brought together for a purpose brought together to be used of God to bring others to Christ and it shows us something it shows us that a a community of people united around Jesus Christ united around common faith in Jesus Christ can do absolutely impossible things from a human standpoint that God can do in a ragtag group absolutely 
unbelievable things. God things. There are some very important implications here for us. And, and I want to say that these implications are for, for Christians. There's really only one implication I'll bring out if you're not a Christian. And I mean this with all the love I can muster at this, at this juncture of the day. If you're not a Christian, these are not for you because you need Jesus. You need to believe and be saved and be rescued from the wrath to come. Salvation is a gift from God. It, it says in the Bible that everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus will be saved. If you, if you switch the allegiance in your life, your foundational allegiance, from whatever it's been on to Jesus, you'll be saved. Now, I've got to make that clear. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to gloss it over and say, you know, this is for everyone. It's not. This is for born-again believers in Jesus. That's why someone who's not a Christian can't understand the Word of God. They don't have the Spirit of God. You've got to have the Spirit of God to understand the Word of God. But if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, number one, the first implication, based on, on just on this small passage of Scripture that we're camping out on today in Matthew 10, 1 through 4, first of all, you have been chosen. And this ought to make you feel very special. You have been chosen and called by God to salvation, but also to service. And the two aren't just two choices you can make. They go together. They are, they are it's a non-negotiable expectation that once you're saved, you'll serve. It, it, it's not an option. All God chooses, all who, whom he chooses, are called to take the gospel to others. Think of it this way. It costs nothing to us to be saved. God paid the whole cost. Jesus died on the cross in our place, taking our punish, the punishment we deserved, substituting himself for us so that we might have life. He died for his enemies so that we would be his friends. Now, that costs us nothing to be saved, but it costs us everything to follow. Absolutely everything. And you might not feel able, you might not feel adequate, but God will be your adequacy and sufficiency. And just as salvation is a free gift from God that we didn't deserve, being called by God to serve Him is an undeserved gift. It's the idea that God uses us in spite of ourselves, not because of us. It's not like there was something all, all great about us that God said, I think these are the only ones I'm going to pick because they're the best of the bunch. It's not like when you're picking apples at the supermarket or peaches or, or whatever, when you, you take the ones that aren't bruised, you know, the bananas. Uh, it's not like we choose. We choose, we want to choose the best and the brightest, and we want the A-team, right? Jesus didn't choose that, and, and, and because of the way he did it so that people would know Whose power was really involved? Think about when David was chosen. All his brothers went before him and they thought, well, Samuel kept thinking, this is, this is him, this is him, this is him. No, no. Youngest. Um, 
God is going to use us in spite of ourselves. That's good news for us who struggle so mightily with sin. He's not going to use us because of us. He's going to use us in spite of us for his glory because of his grace. He is going to use you to fulfill his purposes. Have you thought about that lately? You might be sitting here today and say, but, but I'm a failure. You might say today, well, I've blown it too much. You might say, I am unable to do what I'm called to do. It's a common feeling. It's common. Let me put it to you this way. You are a tool in God's hands. Just this past Friday, we were in this room remembering the life of Dave Baker. It was a beautiful service of, of praising Jesus for his grace. His family, his friends, all of us, we, we remembered Dave as a man who loved Jesus. He wasn't perfect, nor would you want someone to be. And he was a tool in God's hands. And if you think about it, you could look around this room. You might not even have been here very long, but it, the longer you're here, the more you can see it. But you look around this room, and you see people that you like, and you see people you don't like. And you see people who, who you just click with and others that rub you the wrong way consistently. And you look around the room and, and you can praise God because as you look around the room and you see people, you realize how much God has used them in your life, even the ones that bug you so much. Because we can learn from everything and everyone. But you are a tool in God's hands. Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says, The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. It means they are incapable of being changed. So, for example, the gift of eternal life. He's not going to change his mind on you. But what that also means is you're in. You're in, you're in. If you're out, you're not in. But if you're in, you're in. And you can't just say, hey, I'm going back. I'm out now. No, you can't do that if you're in because God is the one that made you there put you there chose you for there and the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable and and even in terms of serving him he is going to use you in spite of you God does the calling and choosing that's the idea 2 Peter 1.10 says that we should make all the more sure of his choosing and calling of us and that's first and foremost in salvation but you need to know what it is you're called to do and, and that's the most common question there is uh, for Christians is what am I supposed to do and, and is my life significant is there something I'm doing that even is making a difference for the gospel and that's a great question how do you know if God is calling you or has, call, or has called you to something how do you know all of us have that question so I've got three questions you could ask yourself to find out. The first question is this. Is it biblical? Think about what you're doing. If God has called you to something, for example, to be a Christian, to be a, a spouse or a sibling or a child or an employee or a student. I think of my life and I think Christian, husband, father, pastor, brother, son, neighbor, friend. And those are all callings of God. Um, one of the, the key teachings or doctrines in the Reformation is often ignored, and it's the doctrine of vocation. And we think of it in terms of your job. But the doctrine of vocation is the whole idea that God has a calling on every Christian's life. 
in, in different realms, in the home and in the marketplace and in the community, and that we're to fulfill our calling. So you take whatever role you have uh, as a Christian, as a spouse, as a sibling, as a child, as an employee, as a friend, and so on. For all of them, there are clear scriptural instructions. In each of these callings, there is really absolutely no question what God wants us to do. It's right there. And the idea is this, and it's very simple. Bring the gospel to bear in that setting. If you're a mom, bring the gospel to bear in your mothering. If you're an an architect, bring the gospel to bear in your architecting. And whatever you do and whatever you're called to do, bring the gospel to bear in that arena. That's how God's going to use you as a tool in his hands. Now, the second question you can ask is, is it prohibited by God? Is the thing I'm doing or the thing I want to do, and I'm even saying, it's, we're, we're really good. Christians are really good at, um, at saying, well, God called me to do it. I, was, I, I felt led. And, and we sometimes excuse some rather odd behaviors with those statements. If, if it is prohibited by God, you can be 100% sure God is not calling you to that. So stop that. You shouldn't be doing that. If it is prohibited by man, on the other hand, let's say, for example, preaching the gospel becomes prohibited, then you need to keep doing that because we must obey God rather than man. Third question is, do you desire it? Is it something you want to do? If it's something you want to do and it is biblical and it's not prohibited by God, then maybe God has given you the desires of your heart because you've delighted yourself in him. But most importantly, make sure that the fundamental, foundational allegiance in your life is to Jesus Christ. And if at any time you notice that it is not, quickly confess it to him and realign yourself with him, lest you drift away from him. It happens often. But you acknowledge Christ's lordship in your life, and you will put yourself at direct odds to the world around you. The second implication is that what God calls you to do, he equips, enables, and empowers you to do. What God calls you to do, he equips, enables, and empowers you to do. Think with me for a moment. Right this very moment, you have everything you need given by God to do everything he wants you to do this very moment. And every moment after that, he will supply the need. He will give the tools and the resources and the strength and the wisdom that is needed to do what he calls you to do. And you might say, but I'm I'm not up to the task. There's a lot of people in the Bible that felt that way. I, I think of Moses. He felt that way. You're more up to the task than you think. Something comes into your life and you say, Lord, I'm not ready for this. I'm not prepared for this. You're more prepared than you think. You're more ready than you know because God has given you everything you need right now to do everything he wants you to do. There is is assurance and, and really confidence in that. And he will be your sufficiency and your adequacy. You are a tool in the hands of God and as such, you have permission and the power to act as his representative. 
empowered and enabled to do what is humanly impossible because of the Spirit of God working in and through you. You are an ambassador for Christ. Often people will say, how will I know if God wants me to share the gospel with someone? As an ambassador for Christ, as a representative of Christ, how will I know if God wants me to share the gospel with them? Well, I've got three other questions you can ask yourself, and they're really simple. First ask, are they breathing? Take their pulse. If they're alive, yes, God wants you to share the gospel with them. The second question you should ask is, can I communicate with them? Do I know their language? If not, can I draw pictures or use sign language or something? Or is there someone else I could grab to help me speak with them? Can I communicate with them? And the last question to ask yourself is, do I know what to communicate? Do I know the gospel of the grace of God in Christ well enough to communicate it? And the way you get to know it is by, by dwelling on it often, mulling it over in your head, how Christ died for sins once for all, the, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, that Christ uh, paid for our sins, that, that God sent Jesus to, to save sinners. But God's work is dependent upon him and not us. We're called to be faithful to, to our calling. We're called to trust him. 2 Peter 1, 3 tells us that he has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything you need, you've got right now. And everything you will need, you will get. Last thing I'll say, and this is probably where a lot of people go off on tangents and, and, and don't stay in line with where God calls his people. Number three, you are called to reach others with the gospel within a community of believers. Within a community of believers. He will be glorified by his church. One of the first things you need to, to, to learn when you come to faith in Christ is that you cannot do it alone. There are, there are, we say there are no Lone Ranger Christians. You can't do it on your own. You live within a fellowship of believers and must always seek to honor that fellowship. The more I dwell on the gospel, the more I love Christ's church. Christian mission is a community effort made up of various gifts from God as 1 Corinthians 12 and uh, Romans 12 and Ephesians 4 show us the variety of gifts that God blesses his church with. And you might not like your co-workers. You might not like who God puts you with. How, how would you have liked to have been paired up with, with Judas Iscariot? You know, one of them may end up being an imposter. You are called, though, to be faithful to God's calling. He will be faithful to complete the work that he, that he started in you. And here's what God does. He unites in one family people of completely different backgrounds and personalities and, and he, he forms them into a family. Think about the first 12. One always saw the, half, the glass half empty. One saw it half full. One was a zealot desiring to overthrow the Romans. The other sold himself out to, to collect Romans' taxes. You know, if those two guys had run into each other prior to becoming Christians, there would have been blood. But they were, reuni they were united by the cross of Christ. They were united by Christ substituting himself for them. Do you know that people who hate each other can learn to love each other when they've been chosen by God and called by Jesus Christ? We are part of a unique and unlikely mix of people that God puts together 
for such a time as this. For, for October 3rd, 2010. And we are united by and for the gospel. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are building a gospel-centered community of those that you have chosen and called that proclaims and displays the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that our calling in Christ and the various callings we have is a gift, our gifts from you, and that you, by your Spirit, are giving us power and ability we do not possess in order to do what we could not do in community with other believers to the glory of God. And we thank you in Christ.